This is Terry. Welcome to the AC Podcast. Happy New Year. Here's a podcast I've been working on, and we're going to kick off the year for AC Podcast by giving you the first full episode of Humanize. Hi, this is Terry. And this is Savannah. Welcome to Humanize. In association with the Human Project and the AC Podcast, Humanize will explore humanity and show how others create acceptance for those who are marginalized and treated as less than human. Our new series, The Human Project, looks at historical examples of dehumanization that have robbed people of their human uniqueness. To diagnose dehumanizing perspectives creates opportunities to engage in humanizing action. Each episode of Humanize will highlight a local organization that humanizes those who are treated as less than human. On this episode, we will look at homelessness. We recognize that homelessness has always been around, but I think we should be asking ourselves this question. Does it have to be this way? They are visibly unseen. We look, but we don't see. If you look into the eyes of another person, connecting eye to eye, you see humanity. Homelessness is a challenging issue. We may have a difficult time feeling connected to that kind of suffering. It's overwhelming. Restoring another's humanity is to diagnose the problem as a local and global community. The catalyst to understanding comes from a very human experience. Recognition. Homelessness is exploding here, up 16% in one year, 36,000 wandering the streets of Los Angeles, 59,000 in L.A. County. Seattle, Washington seems to represent what America is becoming. Amazon, Microsoft, Starbucks are all based in the city or its suburbs. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, lives there. But along with unfathomable wealth, there is also desperate poverty and widespread degradation. Seattle's homeless population is surging. A new national report by two advocacy groups found that in an average year, 200,000 people in Canada experience homelessness. If you take that chronically homeless person who's been on the streets for years with complex problems, if you put them in housing and give them the supports they need, they stay housed and it actually costs less. The numbers are staggering, but not surprising. A 30% increase is far more than our economy can sustain, and now we know that homelessness is costing us billions of dollars. On the other side of that, hundreds of people are dying on our streets. Uh, This is a crisis. A 30% rise in homelessness since the last count three years ago. Vancouver saw a good chunk of that spike. 
People staying at a homeless camp in Abbotsford have been shuffled on their way once again. BC Hydro enlisted the help of bailiffs to enforce the deadline to vacate its private property on Gladys Road yesterday. But now a new tent city is being occupied just a few hundred metres away. They're going to do the shuffle. It's called the Abbotsford Shuffle. And unfortunately, it's going to happen again. Savannah and I took a walk by one of the homeless camps near the railway that goes through our city of Abbotsford. Many of you know my voice from the AC podcast. I would like you to meet Savannah, my co-host. I love your jacket. I love corduroy. It's coming in. Yeah, it is. Well, I should bring out my old pants then. Well, I don't know how how in it's going to (laughs) be. Savannah is a young adult. I am what you call an older adult. I think she is referencing that my corduroy pants may have bell bottoms. I can assure you that they're not that old. Even so, it is nice to have such a youthful voice as a co-host for this podcast and to talk about such important issues. Much of the homeless congregate in a specific area close to the railway on the east side of our city. Savannah has lived in Abbotsford for much of her life and abroad in recent years. So I have been in Abbotsford for a majority of my life. I was born in Abbotsford and then spent all my days in Abbotsford until about five years ago when I went to YWAM in Los Angeles and stayed with YWAM for a couple of years and then moved to Vancouver and then recently returned back to Abbotsford about a year ago. It is not so different from many of the places that we travel to. The city of Los Angeles, where Savannah studied at YWAM, Youth with a Mission, has one of the highest homeless rates in America. In 2019, 36,300 people were homeless on the streets of L.A. That statistic is just mind-boggling. So in every place that you went, did you see homelessness? Absolutely, yeah. No matter where you are in the world, I think you see homelessness. Can we curb what most cities are calling a crisis and help those who have been left marginalized and unseen? Living in Abbotsford, Savannah grew up with the knowledge of caring for the homeless. Growing up here, um, I don't think I really saw a whole lot in my early years. But as I got older and was a little bit more aware, I have some distinct memories, especially of my mother. So my mom would drop us off at school in the mornings. And then once a week, she would go to downtown Abbotsford and find a homeless person and buy them breakfast. And I remember one day her saying, after school, so I don't tell your dad, but today I picked somebody up. And usually she would just bring them a meal. But this time she brought them in the vehicle and took them somewhere. So it was very much part of our conversation in the home growing up was that there were people in need around us. But I don't think I had really any immediate reactions until... Maybe I was uh, 10 or 11 with the homeless people here. I live very close to this area of the homeless. And Savannah worked a short time ago across the street from where the homeless gather and live. So every day I would drive past their tents. I would see them in my workplace and around my workplace. And and it's, it's inescapable. And I realized, you know, shortly after starting to work here, I no longer just saw them outside my work, but I started noticing and recognizing people around town. When I had my days off, I would see people. But, you know, you watch it change over time, too. When I first started, some of the camp was farther down the street. And then eventually it all 
came to be huge right across from my workplace. And we've watched them shuffle every morning. They'll have garbage trucks come and make them clean up and they have to move and then they reset up camp. And recently they've been doing construction. So they've all had to kind of shuffle their home about. And I know that's caused a lot of difficulties for everybody. We're walking just past the, the homeless camp right now. Um, it's interesting that they have a big pole with a big Canadian flag on it. Lots of pride in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> when you take the time to view the camps, you recognize that those living on the streets have similar wants and desires as our own. Something um, that's really quick to notice when you drive by the camp is that they have their tents right on the edge of the street and then they hang out on the inside. Their tents kind of separate their living space, if you will, from the street. Um, and when you drive by, you can often see they'll all be sitting in lawn chairs in a circle chatting or hanging out. And it's very evident that there is community. Working or living so close to the homeless comes with its own challenges. We acknowledge that it is difficult for those who live in our cities to deal with the issue of homelessness. The biggest challenge was people would come in and steal from the store. And you get familiar with a lot of the faces and names and behavior, but it's really hard because you want to give people the benefit of the doubt. You want to trust and treat them like a human being because they are a human being and give them the same respect and assumptions that you give all other customers. However, they would often steal or try on clothes and walk out with the clothes they tried on or use the bathrooms to bathe in the sink or the toilets, occasionally um, shooting up in the bathrooms. We had an incident with someone overdosing recently. So those were some of the challenges that we would face on a regular basis. And I think for me, the biggest challenge was how do I address the fact that justice and mercy need to coexist. And so that's been probably my biggest process throughout this past year of working here and working so close to them is how do I have mercy and compassion for them? But also this is a business and there are certain things that are unacceptable. And so, you know, bathing in the sink, for example, um, not only is that a hygienic problem for us, but it's also, you know, we've got families in the store and they send their kids in without the parents. Well, you know, we don't want the kids walking in on someone bathing in the sink, shooting up in the bathroom. And so how do you approach them with kindness and compassion, yet also realizing that justice has to happen? If you're taking advantage of our store or stealing from us, you might not be allowed back in. But how do we ban you per se in a dignifying manner and not grow bitterness towards homeless people altogether just because we've had a few incidences that were negative with a couple homeless people. One thing you notice, everyone wants a place to call home. Even with the little the homeless have, they take pride in what they do have. And you know what? I think people just assume that their camp is really dirty and disgusting and surely there are things that aren't sanitary. But some of them do. We had one gentleman who was in a different area across from us. And every morning you would just look outside and he would be sweeping the dirt, picking up the garbage, folding his stuff, rearranging his stuff. And he kept it immaculate. They do. They make it their home, right? And, and it just looks, it looks different. But everyone desires and needs a place to call home for sure. An article in the Canadian Encyclopedia, last updated online in July of 2019, reports that Indigenous peoples in Canada represent between 28 and 34% of the homeless shelter population. This is heart-wrenching to me because of my Indigenous heritage. 
The conditions and history leading to homelessness among Indigenous populations are significantly different from other populations in Canada. Colonialism, the Indian Act, and the impact of residential schools severed the children physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually from their language, culture, and communities. In what Supreme Court Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin stated was the attempt by Canada to commit cultural genocide against the Indigenous peoples. This has perpetuated intergenerational questions of identity and self-worth. Other groups of homeless include youth between the ages of 13 and 24 represent 18.7% of the people experiencing homelessness in Canada. Women represent 27.3% of the people homeless. Single males between the ages of 25 and 55 accounted for 47.5% of the homeless population. Over 35,000 people across Canada are homeless tonight. The truth is that about a third of them live with mental illness. If you assumed a much higher number, you have iterated one of the more common misconceptions out there. Dr. Stephen Wang, a physician and researcher at Toronto St. Michael's Hospital who has studied homelessness and health for 25 years, states... While people who are homeless have a higher prevalence of mental illness than the general population, it doesn't mean most homeless people have mental illness. For many of us, it's hard to comprehend what it is like to live on the streets when we have a roof over our head. But the realities of the homeless are many. Yeah, um, I've witnessed a, a few things happening. You know, some of them there is community, and then some of them they, they really have really torn relationships with one another. And when you mix in substances into that, I think, and mental health, often there is fighting and arguing and yelling and screaming and name-calling, and that's within their own community. But even, I think, externally... You know, if a homeless person's crossing the street when they shouldn't and they almost get hit by a car, the drivers are going to respond a way different way than if it were, you know, a mom with her stroller running across the street when she shouldn't. So even on like a very simple basis of just name calling or attitudes, I think they face a lot. The feelings of safety for them is a big issue. I think another thing, too, is I do think physical safety is a huge thing recently we came to work and there's police tape everywhere and there had been some sort of dispute between some people and I'm if I'm correct like there was a stabbing involved and um, you know even if you were involved in that situation when it happens right at your doorstep when you're living in a tent that's scary you know you you feel very vulnerable a tent isn't very you know it's not a an intense metal door that you can lock a bolt behind um, you are very susceptible to physical danger. Um, and like you said, especially women as well, being taken advantage of by um, not just people on the street, but people off the street as well, taking advantage of their situation. And, um, and that's a scary thing. I read an article when I began to put this podcast together by Kyla Robbins titled, Making Eye Contact with the Homeless People is Important. She says this, Imagine a day where none of your coworkers would look at you. Your family all ignored you when you tried to speak to them, and even strangers on the street went out of their way to avoid you. How would that feel? Now imagine 
it happening every day. After a while, homeless people who are subjected to this treatment begin to feel as if they were ghosts watching the world but not able to fully participate in it. If they try to strike up conversations, their words fall on deaf ears. They're ignored, dehumanized, and invisible. She goes on to say, when you engage with someone, even in the most basic way like making eye contact, you acknowledge your shared humanity. This is what makes the lack of eye contact so dehumanizing. At times you come across a project that truly inspires and profoundly impacts you. The creator of this book has traveled Canada and the world to do speaking engagements like the World Women's Day in Australia, been on stage with Prince Harry at We Day in Toronto, Canada, and has garnered a humanitarian award from the International Development Relief Fund. She has also been interviewed on radio and television here in Canada and around the world. What impresses me the most about this photographer is her devotion to bring a spotlight to the issues of homelessness. I came across her book from the viewpoint of those who struggle and are homeless. She is a 19-year-old Canadian and, frankly, someone I will call my hero right now. Her name is Leah Denbach. Her book, Nowhere to Call Home, Photographs and Stories of the Homeless, captures the true humanity of individuals. The photographs are black and white, accompanied by a story of individual subjects capturing their struggles and bringing to light issues of those living on the streets. The picture for the promotion of these episodes is a gentleman named Mike. This is one of Leah's photographs. You can read his story in volume two of Nowhere to Call Home. It was a pleasure to sit down and talk with Leah. You might wonder how a girl at the age of 12 begins to dabble in photography and at the age of 17 years old publishes her first book of photographs and stories of homeless men and women. Her story actually begins in India. You see, Leah's mother, Sarah, was left on the streets of Calcutta, India in the early 1970s. At the age of uh, around three, my mother was found wandering the streets of Calcutta, India uh, by a police officer there. And uh, she had like several deep cuts uh, to the head and was probably bleeding at the time. So he took pity on her for that reason and brought her to Mother Teresa's orphanage because uh, he knew Mother Teresa never turned any children away. Then my mother was raised by Mother Teresa in her orphanage, uh, Namala Shishubhavan in Calcutta, until um, she was five when she was adopted to Ontario, Canada. Mother Teresa was a Roman Catholic nun who spent many years in Calcutta, India, and founded the Missionaries of Charity organization. Mother Teresa has become a symbol of generous, selfless work and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. In the preface of Volume 2 of Nowhere to Call Home, Leah, I think, rightly describes the plight of the homeless in Canada, United States, and the world. In India, where my mother was born, lower caste Hindus were once called untouchables. To touch such people, or even was the case in South India, to look at them was to pollute oneself. People experiencing homelessness today, I believe, are the untouchables of Western society. One must not touch them, lest one become dirty or infected with germs, or even make eye contact with them, lest one feel obligated to give them money. Leah recognizes that the events of her young mother's life and the care that Mother Teresa gave to her mom has contributed to the opportunity she has today. It's definitely not uh, like the reason I began photographing people experiencing homelessness, but I definitely think both my mother's story and also the work that Mother Teresa was doing 
uh, has affected me, but more on a subconscious level. Um, it's probably because I've like grown up knowing my mom's story and knowing that if Mother Teresa hadn't been caring for the homeless, I wouldn't even be alive. So it's not the trigger for me photographing people experiencing homelessness, but I really think it has affected me and upon doing it and upon taking it on as a passion as well. Leah did not begin taking photographs of the homeless to champion the overwhelming state of homelessness. It was more modest than that. When I began doing the books, uh, it was merely because I wanted to practice portraiture and strengthen my skills. I really didn't know anything about homelessness. As she began to photograph the homeless, her perception began to change. Um, But after that first photo shoot and after a couple more, I began to see, like, this is a very serious problem. And not only that, but these people are so stereotyped and they're seen as sort of subhuman. And I really wanted to sort of change those those things. And so we decided to do the book uh, and record the stories as well as the photographs. Leah has always been clear about the goals of her project. And the book has the two goals of both humanizing people experiencing homelessness, because uh, we find they're often seen as sort of subhuman people that we shouldn't really interact with, talk to, make eye contact with. And secondly, it's to shine a spotlight on the problem of homelessness, because most people don't realize it's actually a huge problem taking over the country and getting worse and worse. Um, so we really want to, to highlight those two goals. Leah's passion to bring a spotlight on the homeless situation continues. And the first and second book, they're based in North America. And the third book, which will be out around the fall of 2019, uh, is also based in Australia. And same with the fourth book, that will be out in 2020. Leah's third volume of Nowhere to Call Home was just released on December 12th, 2019 by Austin McCauley, Publishers of New York. The book is available in bookstores worldwide and on Amazon. Profits from the sale of the first two volumes have been donated to homeless shelters in and around where she lives. It will be no different for Volume 3, where 100% of the profits will go to the Welcome In Drop-In Centre in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. We will hear more of Leah's story in Part 2 of the Homelessness Episodes. We want to highlight a local organization called Cyrus Center. I still remember the day 15 years ago that Les Talvio, the co-founder and executive director of Cyrus Center, walked up on stage at our church in Abbotsford. It was announced that we would be partnering with them. It is an organization that I witness firsthand the passion they have to help struggling teens in desperate situations. Cyrus Center has some we are statements on their website that tell us exactly who they are. It begins this way. We are a community-based response to community needs, working with diverse communities to bring about creative solutions. I love the beginning of these We Are statements because the work that needs to get done with regards to the homeless in my local community and your community will take a collective effort. The We Are statements continue and describe their dedication, their openness to everyone, to be available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and the importance of establishing caring relationships. I talked with Les Talvio and Josh Epp, a youth worker from Cyrus Center. Listen, and you'll hear throughout the discussion that these We Are statements are the foundation for their passion to help those who are struggling and need a hand up.
I'm Josh Epp, and I'm a youth worker at Cyrus Center. I'm struck by like the unique position that I've been in where I've worked in different avenues of, or exposed to different avenues of agencies working with homelessness. I was just like, like this place is unique. This is, there was something just so relaxed and, and comfortable about it. And I was like, I want to work here. I remember on the um, the posted ad for the job, one of the big things was just like a servant heart and uh, dove right into um, working with these uh, teenagers. They got me going and, and uh, I started with them in October 2017. I grew up in a violent home. This is Les Talvio. Where violence was part of the everyday norm. My mother was severely abused and beaten on a regular basis. And as children, if we ever got in the way um, to try to stop it or say something, we, we too were, uh, uh, became victims. Even if we talked at the dinner table, that would be cause for us to be, uh, to be abused. By the age of 10, my mother no longer lived. She existed. And she was now addicted to uh, different pain medications and different different types of pills um, to get her through the day. And she was no longer able to provide. She was no longer able to look after my brother and myself. And uh, next thing I know, by age 10, I'm on the streets and I'm doing whatever was necessary to provide for my brother and I. I did everything from go door to door and sing Christmas carols by myself to stealing people's pop bottles and beer bottles off their back porch to go cash them in or catching pigeons on the grain elevators uh, to sell to some of my, my neighbors in East Vancouver. After this, I, I became involved in the system. I was in foster homes and group homes, YDC. I had social workers and youth workers and different people, but there was three people who never, who never gave up on me. There was three people that were always there for me, even though at the time I didn't recognize it. Um, and in fact, I saw them more as people wanting me to do things that I didn't want to do. But it was a social worker, a youth worker, and a police officer. And these three continually reached out to me, wanting to ensure that I was safe and making healthy choices for myself. Yet I pushed them away all the time because it was, wasn't about what they were trying to do. I just saw what they were trying to do as, as something that was uh, suppressing what I wanted to do. But when I look back now, it was, it's amazing to see how these three were continually there at all hours and all, you know, whatever days of the week. Tell me about the name Cyrus Center. So Isaiah 4513 um, is where we get our name from. And it, when we talk about setting captives free, we saw these youth as being captive to poverty, homelessness, addiction, um, or as one youth put it to us, loneliness. And we just felt that 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 really was um, the appropriate name for the ministry. We're kind of the, the first line of defense. We're, you know, engaging with the youth that are coming in the door we exist for, for the, this reason, for these guys who don't have, you know, the support network that some of us are fortunate to have. You know, typically on, a, on an average day, it's mostly youth that have been there before. We'll have the odd new person and, you know, begin to take note of what are their needs? What kind of services can we offer to them? 
We've become a like a social hub. So we become the place that they hang out. We're, we're working alongside the social workers that are involved with them, MCFD, the Child Family Services, and different agencies to uh, ensure that, yes, this is this, the current situation at their home or at their foster home or whatever it is, and, and they, they need to access a bed. Every one of these youth we see has a story, and you need to know their story. They want to be heard. Um, when we're planning Cyrus Centre... Um, we're asking, we ask these youth, what are your top five needs? And they talk to us about, you know, we need a place um, where we can do laundry because we have no money to do laundry or there's, uh, we don't have home to do laundry or we need a place to have access to a shower because right then the only place was the rec center and you had to have money to use the rec center. Uh, a place to get food um, and a place, they wanted a place where there was adults that were going to listen to them, not just tell them what they could do, but listen, and then a safe place to stay. So when we created Cyrus Center, we, we tried to give them those things, and we got to know their stories. And I think it's really important to understand. Their story. We worked with a, a young girl, but her backstory was she lived at home with mom and dad and two younger siblings. And one day, mom came home and went up to dad and said, we're over, and I'm leaving, and I'm taking the kids. This girl was 12 years old at the time. And she turned to her mom and said, what are you doing? You're wrecking our family. She said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with dad. Mom left with her two younger siblings. This girl now lived with dad. Dad was a hardworking man here in the Fraser Valley. And she went to school and she would look after the house. She cleaned the house. She would make dinner for her dad, going to school, doing whatever she could to support her, to support her dad. And um, one day dad got a girlfriend. This young girl, she was now 16. She's still going to school, working part-time. Um, her and the girlfriend had conflict, and the girlfriend said to dad, you know, either she goes or I go, and the dad kicked his daughter out of the house. It didn't take long before this daughter was now involved in drugs and in the sex trade, and she got recruited into the sex trade while working at her job. She was working in a restaurant, manning the drive through window, when a car pulled up, and the man in the car said, I hope someone tells you every day how beautiful you are, and she got all bashful and, you know, and said no. And he said, oh, that's such a shame. And he drove off, or so she thought. But he came back inside and asked her if she gets a break. And they had coffee together. Well, he was recruiting her into the sex trade. Um, when, we, when we came across her, she was already addicted to drugs and had been exploited for quite some time. But she didn't choose that. She didn't choose that lifestyle. It happened. We had a dad walk in here with his son. And he pushed him through our doors and said, here, you take him. I don't want him. Everyone just stopped in silence. There was other kids around, and the staff said, oh, you can't just drop your son off here and leave. What's going on? Maybe we can sit down and talk about and see, see how we can help. And he said, I'm not interested in any help. He said, either you take him or point me to the nearest bridge, and I'll take him there. And at that, the dad walked out the door. Um, these aren't choices that these youth are choosing to be homeless. There are many, many different reasons on why, on why they become, become homeless. Here we've got a, you know, a safe place for uh, individuals who need, you know, a place to, to actually sleep for the night. So if somebody say somebody comes to the door and says, hey, I've been kicked out. Um, I can't go back home. Got into a big fight with my stepdad or whatever it was. Do you guys have a bed available? I don't know what to do. 
there is a there's a process that we have to take to ensure that for their own safety and for us to know that you know their story lines up our first line of attack i guess with when somebody comes in there is to ensure that they know that they're safe at Cyrus Center if you're a 16 year old kid who's been kicked out like you're scared there's something that's happened and life's confusing when you can't sleep in in the home or the space that you're supposed to. Some of the youth on the streets are prone to be recruited into the sex trade, becoming sexually exploited, youth having to give of themselves um, for a place to stay um, or something to eat, being recruited into into gang life, into the drug trade. You know, they're used as as pawns and they're insignificant to those that uh, that are recruiting them. They're, in, they're disposable. And so many of these kids that we see are disposable and they're being thrown out and cast aside. And actually, we kind of find ourselves in the recycling business, trying to recycle these young lives and, and make them new and whole again. There's a lot of aspects of what causes, you know, somebody to get kicked out. Um, it's usually, it doesn't happen overnight. Oftentimes the cases that the youth or the individual that's been kicked out, they can't see past the one thing that they think is the reason why they got, like they don't see the, the long trail effects of what's resulted in this. There's a lot of finger pointing and blaming and, and frustration that goes into these relationships being broken and resulting in, in people being kicked out. The very first boy that ever came into Sarsen when we first opened, when he came to us, he was using crystal meth. When we heard his story, it was conflict with dad and him and dad were, were arguing back and forth. This was going on a daily basis and each one tried to outdo the other as far as volume went. And one day the dad said to the son, he says, look, if you don't want to follow our rules, you can leave. At that, the son left taking it that his dad kicked him out, although his dad didn't kick him out, but the son ended up on the streets. And the longer he was away from home, higher, wider, and deeper became the walls, the barriers that separated them. He might as well have been across the country. He started using pot and alcohol, got introduced to meth, and while doing the meth, it kept him awake and it fended off the hunger. That was how he, that's how he survived. He didn't have a place to sleep. If he did crash, it was in underground parking lots or in vehicles or in parks. different aspects of mental health that come into play. And I mean, oftentimes there's some drug abuse that follows that. For us at Cyrus Center to try our best to provide a place where we can really, you know, encourage and support um, youth and just say, hey, like you're safe here. Like, let's talk about these things. You're not, you know, we're not going to, nobody's going to be yelling and nobody's going to be upset. Well, there's, there's definitely times where you know, it's, it can get pretty heated where there's, you know, where we become the, the person that gets all of the boiled up frustration. I think each, each situation, each individual situation is different. Unfortunately, like the beauty of, for the majority of them, not all the time, but the majority of the time we have developed relationships with these youth. We have an idea of what kind of situations they're in and possible assumptions of what's happened to result in the situations that might unfold. These youth are looking for 
a place to belong, a sense of belonging. Um, that was one of the risks is they, they look in the wrong places for that. So we see each one of these youth that come in here as God's beautiful creation. We're not about giving them a handout. We're about giving, providing them with that hand up. We provide them with a listening ear, and we provide them with with grace. We don't hold our faith over them. It's it's never a condition to any any services that we provide. These youth come because it's a safe place to be, and they can have their basic needs met in a loving, compassionate way. And we provide a relationship. We look at building a relationship with these youth or with their families, anyone that's connected with them, uh, because we feel if we can establish a relationship with them, we're going to have a much greater uh, opportunity for success. I think we're best known as really being a ministry of just being there. You know, we have someone here 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. We're consistent, and that there's always someone here. So consistency and the fact that we're going to listen and we're not going to judge them because we see youth from every every walk of life, every ethnicity, every sexual orientation, every belief or lack of belief um, come through our doors and we're going to listen and we're going to be there. I'd say first and foremost, it's, you know, when somebody walks in the door at Cyrus Center they're either brought in by social worker, a parent, a friend, a police officer. We, we ask them what their name is. When we get to know their names, they're not just, you know, you name it, the name that people have been calling them because of their actions or their choices that they're making, where we get to call them by their name. They've been told they'll never get out of these issues or they're always going to be like this or they're never going to get better. They're not good enough. They're not worth it. You know, they start to really believe it. It's just really sad to see somebody who just sees themselves as not worth a a chance at all for, you know, being able to be independent and and to live uh, a normal, healthy life. We certainly have like a lot of hope for us to, to, to help them recognize like, Hey, like, yeah, life might suck right now. And we're going to help and try to help, you know, create opportunity for you guys to make some change. And we provide emergency housing for youth here in Abbotsford and in Chilliwack in these two locations. And they are the only two youth shelters between Metro Vancouver and the Okanagan. So we're serving a very large area, and it's, a, it's an underserved demographic when it comes to youth homelessness. We also do this because the need is there, and everybody who's involved at Sire Center is involved in ministry. These are all local missionaries that are um, impacting lives of, of kids in our community in the Fraser Valley and the Fraser Canyon. We look at homelessness and poverty as a community issue requiring a community response. And that's how Cyrus Center has survived. We're supported by the community. Um, churches, businesses, individuals have really uh, held up Cyrus Center and is, have allowed us to go in places where some people don't want to go. Um, the back alleys and the drug houses of Abbotsford is our, is our missions field, and it's one that we take seriously. Donating to Cyrus Center would allow them to continue the work with homeless youth. Yeah. 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> Blippi! B, L, I, P, P, I. All right. Just to quote my son. Yeah. Lena Facilla is a wonderful young woman I met through an Abbotsford police initiative called Project Angel. Project Angel aims to combat the opioid crisis and find help for those addicted and on the streets. Lena is one of a dozen or more peer support workers, or as they call themselves, angels. They reply to referrals from first responders, police, fire, and ambulance, community support agencies, family, and friends. The angels provide support and facilitate access to resources. The angels come from a place of lived experience. This is Lena's story. Just a warning, some of this material is upsetting and may be triggering. Probably all started when I was really, really young and my mom and dad divorced. I was one and a half at that time and uh, my mom was going through her own mental health issues and I just grew up really impoverished and in a lot of dysfunction and without. So I wasn't able to do a lot of school stuff, wasn't able to be included in a lot of stuff, which left, you know, the self-worth unexistent. So I quit school and just started hanging out downtown and I started off panhandling at first when I was out on the streets so that was that was easy enough and then and then started smoking pot and led to harder drugs and tried coke and harder things to do to get drugs and and then one thing led to another and boom I it's like I found a group of people out on the street. No, oh, okay. My sidekicks here, yeah. My security force. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't need anything. You want us. Right? <laughs> These big scrawny things. Like, oh, right. <laughs> hey, just because they don't look strong, doesn't yeah. mean they aren't. It's, it's the look that you get. Them, it right? is. It's the look. Yeah, yeah, just stare them down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other voice you hear is Lena's colleague, Kaya Ashley. Kaya is a peer support coordinator for Project Angel. Yeah. Give me a show later if you need anything. Yeah, for sure. Cool, cool. Hey, if you have time, maybe go through some of your kitchen stuff for, for Bria. I would really like to, every time I look at her files, I'm just like, we still haven't done that. We still haven't done that. No, but she's still living there, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It would be nice to do that maybe sometime this week. Get some rest. Not yet. Yeah. I just gave her another assignment, so... Okay. It is what it is. Our work never stops. At the age of 12, Kaya was on the streets and stayed on the streets for the next 12 years. We will hear more of her story in part two of our homelessness episodes. Lena and Kaya love their work of caring for the addicted and the homeless. Oh yeah, we're such a good team. I love it. I love being able to take the phones for her on the weekend and and handle that. And it makes me feel really important to be able to, to do those and make those connections with services to people. and. One of the most interesting aspects of Project Angel is that it is peer support led. This means that those on the streets are connected with people with lived experience, like Lena. That's really what I've wanted to do with my life since getting clean. Getting clean and trying to think of like, how am I supposed to get to where I want to be without going to school, having a clean record, taking all these steps, jumping all these hurdles. This project, this job that I have skipped me through all of that and I'm supporting people just because of my experience. It's just incredible. We talked earlier in the podcast about making eye contact with the homeless. Lena knows firsthand that small acts like these make a big difference. That says, hey, I see you. Just to like not have any judgment. And when someone says hi to you, just say hello back. 
there's nothing, nothing's going to come of you just saying a simple hello to people. That can brighten someone's life. It's the difference between wanting to give a little bit of joy and a little bit of hopefulness to an elderly person who might be alone and have no support and have no family left and be out on their own struggling to a person who's out on the street and entrenched in addiction. Uh, there should be no difference. There should be that want to just give a little bit of compassion and give a little bit of that familiar hope, that, that, that humanizing, right, of just saying like, hey, I see you. The drive to become clean and give back to others and the community was incited by the birth of her baby boy, Mantis. The next segment comes from the Abbotsford Stories Project, a video series produced by the City of Abbotsford and the University of the Fraser Valley. After everything I did in my life, after everything I went through and put myself through, even through all the drugs that I did, I was still given the one gift, the one thing I yearned for my whole life to be a mom. And without even a thought, I aborted the baby. I wrote a prayer and uh, just asking for forgiveness. And not even a month later, I was pregnant. And then I'd gotten, gone and gotten high a couple times after I found out. And as soon as I got high, as soon as I did that smash, all I could picture in my mind was my little baby sitting inside me going like this, all affected from the crystal meth, you know, and not being able to handle his movements and not being calm and, and complete. As soon as I felt that, it was like a switch. It was like, it wasn't even about me getting high anymore. It was, my body wasn't even my own. It was my baby's. Baby, I love you, cause you're my dancing fool. And I love you all day long till the cows come home. And I love those toes. And I love that nose. And I love you all day long till the cows come home. Well, you're my sweetie pie. You're the apple of my eye. And I love you all day long till the cows come home. You're my baby boy. You're my biggest joy. And I love you all day long till the cows come home. You can find the full video of Lena's story by searching for the Abbotsford Stories Project. Functional Zero Homelessness, tracked by the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, defines Functional Zero as a city having three or fewer people who have been homeless for six months or more. Medicine Hat Alberta has proven that this is achievable, reporting only 10 chronically homeless people in November of 2019. An article titled Edmonton Treats Homelessness Like the Disaster It Is, is Getting Results, was published in the Globe and Mail on December 26th. In this article, the author encourages us to frame homelessness as the disaster comparable to the worst natural disasters in Canadian history. The author says, The key to ending homelessness is to shift from managing the crisis to solving it. In every disaster response, there is a command center, uses real-time data to problem-solve and coordinate the response. All disasters are highly dynamic and rapidly changing. Homelessness is no different. We see this in Abbotsford with the Homelessness Action Plan. Many different agencies are cooperating to find housing and eliminate homelessness. I think we are heading in the right direction. Homelessness stats in Canada are alarming. According to the Globe and Mail article, homelessness affects more than 235,000 Canadians a year, 35,000 every night, and costs Canadians more than $7 billion a year. Does it have to be this way? I feel hopeful that it does not. 
we challenge you to do more than just talk about homelessness. Take on a human project. Find a way to care for people in your community. Show love. Make eye contact. Humanize your neighbor. Next time on Humanize. The way I came upon this doing the showers is a great idea, but that's not my cup of tea. And even my attitude towards homeless wasn't super positive at the time. Working in the downtown east side, I recognized that people needed to be loved and accepted where they were at. Till we had a true, authentic relationship with them, we weren't going to be able to reach through to their hearts. They were able to start receiving love again. And I believe that's the only way that our hearts can heal is when we can start receiving love and that starts to repair those wounds. So the concept is housing first, but not housing only. So we want to do housing with wraparound supports. Building relationships with people once they're housed brings some stability into their life. And then you can start to chip away at some of the complex issues. This episode was hosted by Terry Crosby and Savannah Coop, produced by Terry Crosby. Humanize was created in association with the Human Project and Apologetics Canada.